from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Vito Beninati, a Baha'i from Long Island who was adrift after returning from the Vietnam War, but found direction after running into the Baha'i faith. Before playing this interview, I'd like to play a piece from National Public Radio about an interfaith children's class focusing on what's common among religions, especially in the area of cultivating virtues. Okay, a Jew, a Baptist, and a Baha'i get together every Sunday morning. No, it's not the setup line for a bad joke. It's a new kind of religious education. Once a week, families from a range of religions gather to teach virtues to their young children. NPR's Barbara Bradley Haggerty visited one such class in Falls Church, Virginia, where she learned about helpfulness. Sunday school at the Miller Moreau's house is not what you would call typical. Hey, Gil, can you manage the pillow fight? I'm not sure that's a great idea. Welcome to the Virtues class, where eight rambunctious children between ages three and six have gathered with their parents to learn about obedience and service and friendliness. Laylee Miller-Moreau says there's so much pressure on young kids today, the push to read earlier and to get into the best schools, that spiritual education falls by the wayside. We want them to succeed in society, not only materially, but also spiritually. We want them to contribute and be good people, and there's not a whole lot of training out there for that. And so last September, Laylee and her husband Gil, who are Baha'is, went to the religious community and asked them to sponsor a virtues class. In the past decade, about 900 such classes have sprung up nationwide. They're based on the central Baha'i tenet that all religions are different, but come from the same source. Gil says the couple then asked their friends if they'd be interested. When we proposed this idea to them, they said that that was something that they would love to do too. So we realized that we had a critical mass and it was time to get started. Okay, let's start. Tap, tap, tap. Is Tatton here today? Is Tatton here today? Oh, yes, he Kids is. and parents sit on the living room floor. They're from Muslim, Jewish, Protestant, Unitarian Universalist, and Greek Orthodox backgrounds. Rachel Galub Ortega, who's Jewish, says she wants her son to become familiar with and to accept all religions. I really want Luca to have, when he grows up, is when someone says, I'm Baha'i, I'm a Zoroastrian, I'm whatever they say. If he doesn't know, for him to say, well, tell me about that. And so Laylee does. She gathers the children around the dining room table, each with a little lampshade. Remember how last time we talked about how religions are a lot like lampshades? They might look different, 
but they all have the light of God inside of them. The kids glue symbols of various religions onto the shades: a cross, a Buddhist wheel, a star and crescent for Islam. Everybody who finishes their lampshade, come over to the light, and we'll practice putting it on the light, the lamp. Okay? After they've come to the light, Layla turns to the virtues. She starts by asking about last week's lesson. Did anyone exhibit contentment this week? No, not you. <laughs> But we're good at honesty. Each week they learn a different virtue. They studied justice for the Martin Luther King holiday. For service, they made chocolate chip cookies and delivered them to a retirement home. Mimi Alamayo says she came to the class after she had an epiphany a year ago about her son Jacob. They were visiting family in Ethiopia and saw some children begging. And I was telling him, you know, these kids don't have any food and don't have anything. And he said to me, "Mommy, I think you need to tell their mommies where Whole Foods is." <laughs> I said, "Oh my God, then I really have a lot of work to do." <laughs> Hi, do you have something to say to me? My favorite virtue is. TVs. Actually, TV is not on the list of virtues, but helpfulness is. You wanna be my partner? Come on, partner! To illustrate helpfulness, the children take turns guiding each other blindfolded around obstacles in the room. Some are more helpful than others. So, do the virtues stick? Shazia Philipson thinks so, especially when she receives an occasional lecture from her daughter Serena. And it's things like patience. In the car, I'm driving. She'll say, "Mommy, you have to be patient." And they've been so patient, waiting for the highlight of the class, cowboy hay. Gil Miller Moreau's stepfather strides into the room, sporting a long white beard, a hillbilly hat, and a banjo. The parents collapse into comfortable chairs as Cowboy Hay and his young virtuosos sing about unity in the complex future they face. Barbara Bradley Haggerty, NPR News. Now here is my interview with Vito Beninati. I started the interview by asking Vito where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there. Well, I grew up in、um, on the south shore of Nassau County in Long Island. What it was like was、uh, pretty rural when when I was a kid. There were you know a lot of lots around and a lot of a lot of space to, to play and kids could be out. Now it's very very developed and traffic galore and.、Uh, A tremendous influx of people all over Long Island. Someone actually visited, and we were driving down this main road, Sunrise Highway, and she said, you, "You know, you can't tell where one town stops and the next one begins because there's just no break." Yeah. You know? What era was it that you grew up in? I was born in 1947. My time, Woodstock time. And so, did you have any interests growing up? My interests were mechanical in nature. I.、Uh, I used to build cars and race cars, and、uh, I started with、uh, bicycles and go karts and motorbikes, and wound up developing in those areas. And then in the Air Force, I wound up in, on jet planes and cargo planes, and 
that developed into a heating and air conditioning business as an adult and uh, haven't done any mechanics for a long time, but now I'm a heating and air conditioning contractor. Mm-hmm. Now, did you go into the Air Force right after high school? I, at that time in our lives, I was like one of the last ones left. Everyone was being, if you didn't enlist, you were, you were just taken right up by the Army or the Marines. So I enlisted in the Air Force. Mm-hmm. I wound up in Vietnam anyway. And what was that experience like? What, 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 did you, what did you end up doing in Vietnam? I was an aircraft mechanic in Vietnam, and we were constantly bombed and the base trying to be overrun. And actually, that was the catalyst that really uh, the call to search for answers. Mm-hmm. Vietnam was my catalyst. Yeah. What, what were the questions you were asking? Well, I, I can remember it. it was dawn one morning on the base. No birds ever sung, singing there and I was outside a cafeteria and um, a song by Tommy James and the Shondells was playing Crystal Blue Persuasion and the lyrics were about peace and good and brotherhood all of his children in every nation I just looked around and I said there's got to be an answer to this and nobody around here has it crossing the street I was touched to search that became stronger and stronger even in a fanatical way, to find answers. Now, what, what was going on in Vietnam that caused you to start asking these questions? What, what were you experiencing personally in Vietnam that caused you to start asking these questions? I, I saw lepers living off our garbage, constantly the threat of annihilation, uh, hearing the B-52 bombers bombing right outside our, the perimeter of our base and the, the earth shaking was like uh, continual earthquakes and thinking about the people that were out there that were being hit with those bombs and just the, the amount of times that they tried to overrun our base and they just there was a lot of terrorist kind of activities I would describe that people that actually worked on the base were working for the North Vietnamese and there was a lot of sabotage and all kinds of things going on so it was, a, it was just inhuman. You know, there was, there was no feeling of peace. Not having been in any kind of uh, experience like that, it just threw me. And I said, there's got to be an answer to this. That, that song, it, it rang true, that, that that's got to be what the truth is about, and this is so off the mark. I just had to know. I had to have answers, and that was what my search was about, answers. Now, was your base on the mainland and not on a ship? Yeah, I was in uh, Benoit. I was uh, not far from Saigon. It was an air- airport, actually, the biggest aerial port in the country. Uh, constantly planes flying in and out and constantly under attack. And what was your job there at the airport? Uh, I was a fighter mechanic, mm-hmm. fighter plane mechanic. You said the search took a um, fanatical aspect. Can you... Describe that a little bit. When I got out of the service, I uh, came back to the States. I had been gone, actually. I was, I was in Vietnam for a year and a day, but I was uh, overseas in Taiwan and uh, Okinawa. So I was out of the States for like two and a half years. And there were dramatic changes from the time I, was, I left. Ooh. I left, everybody had short hair, and, and Woodstock hadn't happened. I was overseas when Woodstock did happen and came back to hippies and you know, all, all kinds of major changes. So uh, I, I felt very displaced, but I just knew I had to, I had to understand the answers to my questions. 
I looked at people of my age, and they, they were rebelling against the institutions that existed, and I looked at the older people who took the material path, and even those who had made it, just there were no smiles on anybody's faces. There was no smiles on faces in the war, and there was no smiles on faces when I came back here either. There was rebellion, and there was people caught in the, in the material trap, and, and um, I just said there's, there's got to be something that makes sense of all of this. You know, I just would work to sustain myself, and I just searched and searched. I uh, joined organizations, going through students of esoteric thought, meditated so much I didn't have to sleep anymore, uh, read incessantly, uh, all kinds of mystical books. If I heard something on the radio and it sounded like somebody knew something, I would be going to that talk. In the Baha'i writings, there's a book that Baha'u'llah wrote called The Seven Valleys and the Four Valleys. Yeah. And the very first valley is the Valley of Search. Mm-hmm. It's a treatise addressed to a Sufi to relate the principles of the Baha'i faith to a Sufi. And in there, he, he describes what the Valley of Search is. And you're looking under rocks and trees and in the dust and everywhere to find the truth. Because right. you're, you're in that mode, you're in that search mode. And you'll, you'll go anywhere in any path, in any direction to find it is what you're looking for because you know it's out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. It sounds like that's what you were going through. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I remember in, uh, it was Thanksgiving of 1975. I just decided on that day, went to my folks' house for Thanksgiving dinner, and I just decided I'm just not going to eat until I, until I get the answers. Wow. And I just got up from the table and I started fasting. I did it for three days and became delirious. But, and I was trying to talk myself into, okay, the answer is going to come. Something's going to happen. I'm going to, I'm going to know what it is. And it didn't happen. You know, I went to different churches and sat when they were empty, and it just felt like nobody's home. This one particular day, I'm driving down a highway, and very strongly the question came to me, oh, okay, you set a goal, you were going to figure it out, and it didn't happen. What are you going to do? Unequivocally, the answer from inside of me is, I'm, ne- I'm never going to give up. I'm not giving up. It, it's got to happen. And actually, it, it was very mystical how it did happen. One evening, sitting in my living room, I had been writing, chronicling all, all over the through the years. That was the only thing actually that kept me in touch with the <laughs> physical world. I feel because I, I became so abstract. I dreamt continually and recorded dreams, but I also was logging my thoughts and my my journey. And this one evening, I sat down and started reading the book of my writings, and very clearly, when I started, I uh, had the thought in my mind from the Bible, saying, you will know the tree by its fruit. And with that thought in mind, I was reading and reading, and I, I just finally, at the end of it, I, you know, I knew there was some truth in it, but I just wrote, this isn't it, this, this can't be right, and I just wrote, the end, <laughs> new perspective, new approach. When I wrote that, Everything just seemed to empty out of me, and I just became clear as a bell, like I was hearing for the first time. It was an incredible, cathartic experience. And as I sat there, all of a sudden, the room just started to illuminate, and I felt just encompassed by this beautiful light, and there was such a feeling of love. And very clearly, I heard this voice saying, you're looking for God. And then the light faded, and... I started thinking, I said, well, wow, I, you know, I never really realized that that's what I was looking for. I was looking for answers. 
and I never equated it for God for some strange reason. Well, let me ask you, what was your concept of God growing up and up to that point? I was raised a Catholic, but, you know, had catechism and had went to church a little, but it really didn't do anything for me. It was very alienating. Uh, a lot of bad experiences in that, in that whole thing. I kind of connected with Christ at, at one time, I guess in, in my 20s, in my early 20s. This was so uh, while you were in the Air Force? Right after I had, I had gotten out, I lived in Arizona for a while. Mm-hmm. When I was on my own out there, I started connecting more with Christ, but that didn't really hold a lot for me. It was kind of a help, but I still was searching really hard. What was missing? It just didn't seem to be the power to sustain, to give me the, the answers that I was looking for. That's what was missing. Because I didn't know I was, I was searching for God, even though I connected with Christ, I needed answers to the what I saw going on around me and what was happening in everyone's lives and this material pursuit and the lack of happiness and the confusion of anybody I tried to talk to. I just didn't seem to get anything that was satisfying. That evening that I was in my living room, I had that experience that you're looking for God and then the light faded. And when I realized that's what I was doing, and I said to myself, well, okay, how am I supposed to figure this out? Everybody's saying this way, this way. Again, the light returned, and very clearly I felt or heard this voice saying, if the knowledge of God's available, there must be a source. Then it faded again, and I thought about that. I said, wow. Yeah, I mean, if there is a connection to God, if he does speak to us, it's got to come from somewhere. There's got to be a beginning point. And that just made such sense to me. In that second sentence, I, I really felt in me with all my heart that it was about to come. It was about to happen. I was going to know what that meant, what the source is. And I found myself, in any conversation I was in for the next two days, I was just clear as a bell. I wasn't filled with my own static, my own noise, and I didn't know what the truth was. And I was just like wide open to be able to hear. And it was two days after that I was introduced to the faith. And how did that happen? I was met with an or- the organization, the Students of Esoteric Thought. We were in um, a friend's living room, and there was about oh, a dozen people there. This one young man just was all excited. He was a member of the organization also. And he was saying he had discovered something, he found something, and he started sharing it. And immediately I found myself totally tuned into him. But every time he started to talk, he said something that didn't seem to sound right to the other people in the room. They just, they would just counter him and, and cut him off and not let him speak. And this went on back and forth for several minutes. And I kept saying, you know, we're all supposed to be seeking truth and answers here. And this, here's a guy that's all excited sitting here in this chair, and he says he's discovered something, and nobody wants to hear him. I, I'd like, really like to know what he's got to say. You know? What is this organization about? What is the purpose of this organization? Uh, it was uh, theosophy. Krishnamurti and uh, Madame Blavatsky and all, the, all these uh, esoteric books that were around in, uh, during the time that Abdu'l-Bahá had, c- had come to the United States. Abdu'l-Bahá being the son of the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, yes. Baha'u'llah. He came to the United States, I think it was right. 1912, and traveled all over the United States giving talks to these kinds of societies, you're saying. Right, and it was a, there were a lot of mystical works that were 
written during that time, and a lot of these books came out of that period when the Eastern was touching the Western. It was meditation, and it was a lot of esoteric teachings, meaning hidden, which, you know, as I understand now as a Baha'i, they're not hidden. They're, they're all revealed, you know, through the, the Baha'i writings. Uh, I found so many answers that I, did, I didn't even have near the questions for the answers that I discovered. Anyway, what happened in that in that room that night was that a couple got up and went to have a smoke, and somebody somebody else went to get something to eat, and somebody went to the bathroom, and it wound up just this young man Ray Lewis and I in someone's living room together, and he started sharing with me the, the teachings of uh, the Baha'i faith, and I just begged him for a book, and he got a book into my hands right away, and as soon as I opened that book, I the first time I laid my eyes on the words of Baha'u'llah was like a God was a loudspeaker. You know, it was the voice I heard in the Ten Commandments as a child. You know. Now this fellow also was just discovering the Baha'i faith for he the first time. He had just become a Baha'i himself. <laughs> so you, you basically became a Baha'i immediately once you heard the writings of Baha'u'llah? Yes. As soon as I laid my eyes on his words, I knew it was true. And then it was actually during this time, it was, it was like the fourth day of the fast. Now let me explain to folks that there's a 19-day period in the year where Baha'is fast, similar to Muslims who fast during the month of Ramadan. The Baha'is fast from March 2nd to March 20th every year from sunrise to sunset is when we abstain from food. So you're speaking of the third day of this fast. Actually, yeah, it was the third or fourth day of the fast that I went to the fireside, but it was just right on the first day of the fast that I laid my eyes on Baha'u'llah's words for the first time, and I, I guess I read about the calendar and the fast, and I realized that the fast had just begun, so I just started fasting immediately, and then the first weekend, that Friday, I went to a fireside. And, uh, now, a fireside for folks is a public uh, meeting usually held in somebody's home where the introduction of the Baha'i faith is provided. And I was really impressed uh, from being involved with the students of esoteric thought and, and all the other different things I used to go in and out of. I found these people that were sitting in this room. It just struck me so much that everybody seems to be real. That was the word that came to me. It's, this is real. There was no air. It was just like a breath of fresh air. I felt so different with the people that, I, that were in that room, and I didn't know any of them. And I just pondered at the end of that evening, just closed my eyes and thought about it, and I said, they're real, and this is real. I told the people there that I, I really believe this. I want to be a Baha'i. Just an obvious thing to do. It's been quite a journey ever since. My life really came together because I really wasn't able to accomplish much at all. I started my business two weeks after finding this faith. So let me ask you, how long ago was that that you became Baha'i? 1976. So we're talking about 32 years. Yeah. And I guess you felt in those 32 years that you've, you found what you were looking for in the previous oh, years yeah, of it, your life? It, it, it's, <clears throat> yeah, it's given me... I had no direction. I, did, I swore I wasn't going to go pursuing a material thing until I had the spiritual answers. After finding this spiritual connection, I was able to start this business. And really, I started it not even knowing, not having the education or the background to do it, but having a, a strong reliance on the spiritual connection that I 
felt through Baha'u'llah and a real connection to God actually have quite a successful business. And, and I definitely attribute it to following the teachings that he's given us are, are so basic to our own spiritual natures that we seem to have lost sight of, of treating each other, treating people like you would like to be treated and having honest, honesty and integrity. And, and people know when they're being treated in that way. The business just really grew and grew and grew and you know, you just do the right thing, and the right thing comes back to you. Now, I'm just curious why you weren't able to find what you were looking for in the other organizations that you were, were involved with or the churches you were involved with. What was different here? For one thing, for certain, I, I wasn't empowered by it at all because I, I think I had come in contact, contact with before this time it just didn't light me up. It just didn't give me the connection to my source like this did. And this was quite empowering. Like Jesus said, you will know the tree by its fruit. It started producing fruit immediately. Were you always planning on starting a business? or was No, this... I didn't know what I was going to do. So how did the idea of starting a business come into your head? <laughs> I guess as guidance. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any advanced education. I decided to not go to work for anyone and just figure it out for myself because I felt so empowered to do anything I decided to do. So I, I learned how to start a business, and I, I started it. So I had to learn all different facets of establishing a business and, and incorporating and administration and, you know, everything, advertising the whole, the whole nine yards, doing the work until it grew to start hiring. It's been quite an experience, you know, all along quite an education to go about it this way. Yeah, I guess you had to learn the hard way. Yeah, but it really wasn't the hard way because I had, I had the real guidance as to what's fundamental in, to success. Mm -hmm. You know, I, early on, I, I think it was about six years after I had started the business, I read an article in Reader's Digest that uh, listed the ten most common reasons why businesses fail. Jeez, I had eight out of ten of them. <laughs> what were they? You know, uh, no capital, not the proper education. Uh, it's been so long now, I can't even recall all of it, but I, I recall that the 10 that were listed, I definitely only had about two. And But the one th see, the one thing that really stuck with me, because I smiled when I read it, is that our supreme institution, the Universal House of Justice, said that any evaluation of a situation that doesn't take into consideration the supreme power of Baha'u'llah is entirely misleading. So without God in the equation, without your belief system in the equation, the whole, the whole thing was inaccurate. You found starting your own business successful right off the bat? No, it, it was a slow, steady pace. Mm -hmm. There wasn't any immediate success. Mm -hmm. you know, I struggled financially for 20 years, but uh, the beauty of it was that I, uh, I was in people's homes all the time because it's a service-oriented business. I was able to meet people, uh, new people all the time, which I found wonderful to be able to talk to them about life and a lot of different things because I was always in someone, someone new's home, you know, many times a week. So uh, I loved that part of it, and the business just grew and connected with more and more people. It seems pretty clear that your life changed direction dramatically after you ran into the Baha'i faith. Oh, quite dramatically. Quite dramatically, yeah. Did people notice a change in you after you became a Baha'i? Oh, yes. 
Can you describe yes, so that? Certainly. Yeah, my parents were delighted. They saw that something happened because they were really concerned about, you know, very disoriented from Vietnam and very, you know, a lot of the guys that came back from the war were, were really messed up. And I was one of them. And uh, they, were, they were delighted to see. They didn't understand what it was. It took years. But they were delighted to see the results of what I was involved with because they, they, they well, saw I got on track. What were they specifically concerned about with you? You know, because I had meditated so much, and I just was working to sustain myself, and, and I didn't I didn't really have any direction, and I uh, was very abstract and very out of touch with the physical a lot. Actually, that night at the fireside, that first fireside, when I declared my belief in Baha'u'llah, it, it felt like I had journeyed out into the, the cosmos, and I felt myself touch down again on my declaration. It was like I, I looked around, and it was like I, I just had arrived here from space travel. <laughs> and I became grounded again. Hence, I was able to start my business, and everything started falling into place. And I had the courage and the faith to go forward and keep on going. So you saw the world with new eyes after you became Baha'i? Oh, yeah, yeah. Everything, everything was new. Everything yeah. totally changed. So when you tell somebody about the Baha'i faith, what do you tell them? I love Baha'u'llah, so I, I always share with them who he is and his station as God's most recent messenger that has come with teachings that are going to bring us all together as one family on the planet to investigate this faith as the remedy for all the ills that are afflicting us is something that is worthy of anyone's investigation. You know, if anyone has any concerns about where the world is going or what this is all about, I urge them to look into investigating on their own and would gladly share with them anything that they and any questions they would have. You know, uh, when you find something that has really worked for you and, and is life transforming and turns the lights on as far as the day that we're living in and what where this is all leading to, that we're finally going to be one family on this planet, it's something that you really want to share with everyone because we all we are one family and we're not feeling it yet. So what are you doing now these days, Vito? I still have my business. We just recently opened a Baha'i Center, which I was very actively involved in, and we should be getting our certificate of occupancy within a couple of weeks. And where is this Baha'i Center? This is the Nassau County Baha'i Center in Long Island. I would just like to say that if anyone that's listening that really has a lot of questions and needs answers to those questions, just write down those questions and seek out the Baha'is because they'd be glad to share with you our understanding of what this is all about and where we're going. We're longing to help everyone realize how we're really all connected as one family on this planet. Well, Vito, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. All right, Vito, take care then. Bye, Warren. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Vito Beninati, a Baha'i from Long Island. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
fresh and glad in my spirit
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.